you think this was gonna something like this might happen this year? I, I didn't think anything mind. like this was gonna happen. To be quite honest with you, I think in the public market for a billion dollar company to be doing these kind of moves, I was not expecting that. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Preston Pish of the Investors Podcast Network and Andy Edstrom, author of Why Buy Bitcoin, joins us for a deep dive into MicroStrategy's move to adopt a corporate Bitcoin standard. Glad you found your way here. Enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back to Swan Signal Live. Two of them this week. You're getting a double dose. We've got a lot of big news to talk about, and we've got the guys that we want to talk about it with here, Preston Pish and Andy Edstrom. Before we dive into the episode, a uh, quick note about Swan. Daily buys are coming, guys. Uh, we're launching by the end of the month. The pressure's on uh, Jan and team to get that launched by the end of the month. So go to swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys, and you'll be able to sign up for that beta group. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Catch those dips even better than the weekly buys. Super excited about that. We have good, almost 1,500 people on that beta list, and we're going to get it out to everybody's hands that wants to get in. So uh, check that out. Uh, we are here with Preston Pish of the Investors Podcast Network. What's up, Preston? Welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be back. And Andy Estram, author of Why Buy Bitcoin. What's up, Andy? Welcome back, man. Great to be back with you both. Uh, this is the third time for both these guys setting a record. Uh, they're becoming regulars on the show, and there's good reason for that. Um, today, we're going to dive into this micro strategy news, guys. Uh, they just doubled down, like hardcore, doubled down on Bitcoin as their reserve asset. Uh, we're going to, we got a lot of new information, I should say, from the, uh, the time that uh, it was released, uh, what, in August, middle of August, I think it was. Got a lot more detail now from uh, the Pomp podcast from yesterday and some tweets that came out uh, from, from Michael Saylor, the CEO, uh, just today as well. And we're going to get into all that detail and talk about how this thing all went down. Andy, why don't you start off, give us the blow by blow of this, uh, the logistics of this move here. Okay, sounds great. Happy to do it. Can you hear me clearly? You sound great. Excellent. Okay. So, yeah, we have learned quite a bit. And I think that um, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk uh, in general terms a little bit about corporate finance. So, generally speaking, you learn as an investor and in corporate finance, there's two sort of levels of capital allocation, right? You've got within the company capital allocation, and then you've got between companies. So, any business, right, that has assets and cash flow, hopefully it has positive cash flow, it takes those cash flows and it can decide what to do with them, right? It has, uh, you know, the ability and the responsibility to, if it can, reinvest in the business profitably. And that's a decision between options. It's, you know, do we focus on market one or market two? Do we build out product A or product B? Um, and hopefully, ideally, a good manager and a good board can allocate capital within the company. Now, if they can't effectively allocate cap capital into the business, then they have to look at other options. There's a second level of capital allocation. Preston uh, has probably educated his audience about this already, which is between you know businesses, right? If I'm a hedge fund manager, I'm, an, I'm a mutual fund manager, or I'm just a you know regular individual investor, I decide, okay, I wanna put my money in this stock or that stock, based on the capital allocation decisions and the business prospects of each individual company. So there's two levels of capital allocation and the CEO and the board sort of sit in between the two. They have a responsibility to allocate cash flows and capital in the, within the company. And they of course are responsible to and report to the shareholders. Now in the case of MicroStrategy, these two levels came into play in an interesting way, right? So August 11th, MicroStrategy made two announcements. One was about internal capital allocation, right? That was, hey, we have a new idea and policy with respect to what we do with our treasury. And also we just put 250 million into Bitcoin, 250 million of that treasury. And then also they made a second decision, which, which sort of bridged the internal and the external. They said, look, we're also gonna do a tender offer. So we're gonna offer to take company cash and buy 
shares in the open market basically bridge the internal to the external capital allocation decision. And I won't get too much into the details, but it may be worth, you know, maybe interesting to some listeners. They did a modified uh, Dutch auction. Basically, the way it worked is they said, hey, we're willing to buy up to 250 million of company stock. And anybody who wants to tender between, I think it was 122 bucks and 140 bucks, by the way, the, which was basically the current stock price to about a 15% premium. Anybody who wants to sell us their shares, you know, we'll buy them. And the way it works is, you know, if I'm willing to sell at 125 and Preston's willing to sell at 130, you know, and, and Brady's willing to sell at 140, well, then my order gets filled first, then the next, then the next, but they fill the order book. And once they reach the limit of what they're willing to buy, everybody gets taken out at the top price that basically fills the whole order. Mm-hmm. So um, what happened was they offered to buy 250 million, but they only got 60 million tendered at that premium. And so what happened was a, one, a month went by and Michael Saylor and the board figured out, you know, who was on the bus with respect to their internal treasury decision. They basically said, Hey, we're going to make a Bitcoin bet. Anybody who's not interested this in this, in terms of the shareholders, we'll take you out. We'll take you out at a premium. Um, and then once he'd gathered the orders and realized there was only 60 million of demand, you know, basically to, to buy the shares back. Then he came out, you know, three days later with the double down announcement. Hey, we're going to buy another 175 million. And so, you know, when the Harvard Business School case study is written on this, in terms of the corporate finance and managing the market, I think it was actually kind of a brilliant maneuver because at the same time they managed to make the Bitcoin bet, then take out the shareholders who weren't on the bus with respect to hey, we're going in the direction of Bitcoin, and then you know, close out the, the tender offer and then double down and do the second buy. So I think it was brilliant. I think the the timing and the accessing both, well, basically both the capital allocation decision of buying the Bitcoin and taking out shareholders who weren't interested in the strategy uh, was really smart. And by the way, the stock's now at, I don't know, 165 or something. It had been in the low 120s. So anyone who's sold into the tender offer now looks like an idiot, Right. And now Michael Saylor gets to run a company where the remaining shareholders are more or less, you know, likely fully aligned with his vision of Bitcoin's way to go uh, in terms of uh, where we want to invest our balance sheet. So that's my uh, that's my take on the blow by blow. I think it was brilliant. Um, I'd be hard pressed to come up with a better tactic, you know, if I was the CEO of this uh, or the board of this company. Heck yes, man. That was well done, sir. This is why we have you on the show. Preston, any color you want to add to that? There's nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't steal Preston's thunder. I hope Not I didn't, at all. Uh, I loved I it. I didn't take, uh, you know, I hope I didn't uh, take, take away from your uh, planned uh, commentary there. No, it was much better than my commentary. Well, so my, and, and look, so I mean, I could go on. I mean, I could. I think they can actually do more. I think the balance sheet could support support more Bitcoin, and that's a you know topic I'm happy to talk about. But I'll I'll hand it up back to you, uh, Brady, for now. Well, I was just going to say that uh, you know Michael Saylor was on the Pomp Podcast yesterday, and if you haven't watched or listened to it yet, you should do that. The last twenty minutes, especially, are just absolute fire. Uh, this guy is all in on Bitcoin. Uh, literally. So he says in there that they have 95% of their reserves are invested in Bitcoin or their own stock. Uh, that is That makes up their, their corporate treasury now. Um, he said that this is a deliberate corporate decision to move the company to a Bitcoin standard. Uh, Preston, man, that that's exciting language to me. I love hearing the CEO of a big public corporation in the United States Talking like this, I mean, did, did you think this was gonna something like this might happen this year? I, this I didn't think anything like this was gonna happen. To be quite honest with you, um, I kind of expected there to be a much more conservative approach, at least for companies of this size. I think your smaller businesses, especially on the private side, I think that this is expected. But um, I think in the public market, for a billion dollar company to be doing these kind of moves, I was not expecting that. I was expecting like ten percent of the of the um, whatever marketable securities they had, maybe they, they shifted that in at 10% tops for a billion dollar type company. But um, I think the, and Andy, maybe you know this better than I do, but uh, the way that the voting rights that were stripped out of the company, as far as the earning rights versus the voting rights, Michael has a controlling voting portion of this, right? 
Yeah, so uh, I am delinquent. Uh, I'm, I'm leaning on you, Preston. I'm, I'm assuming uh, that you've analyzed the uh, the proxy statement. Um, that's the part that I didn't uh, do my homework on uh, yet. I was sort of thinking in terms of the corporate finance piece. So I'm going to lean on you on that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I don't know the percent, but I'm pretty sure he has a uh, controlling voting right uh, piece of yeah. this. And I think that's the part that it's really funny on Twitter. You see people saying he's... Uh, he's not managing his risk. What he, he does, he's not doing his fiduciary duty and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just smirking like, what the hell are y'all talking about? Like if you control the voting rights of the company, you can do whatever you want. And if shareholders yeah. don't like it, well then sell your shares and go somewhere else because there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. He's that's got, mean, he's got spot on Preston just articulated perfectly. Right. And this is why the, the sort of the order of operations was so brilliant. Right. He basically said, look, we're going to do this. And we bought we bought some Bitcoin. And, any, and if you don't like it, we'll buy you out at a premium, right? The stock was at, I don't know, 122 or something. And he offered a premium. And anybody who wanted to tender, anybody who didn't want to be on the, Bit, on the Michael Saylor Bitcoin bus, right, could get out at a premium. Right. And so he took those guys out. There weren't that many of them. And then he just came back over the top, right, and bought another $175 million, And the stock continued to climb. So- right. Two things. One, you know, the stock is up materially. I don't know, 30, 35% now. It was down a little today, but I think it's still up a lot. Number one. Number two, anybody who didn't get on the Michael Saylor Bitcoin bus at the moment looks like an idiot, right? If you sold your shares at the tender price, right. you, know, you, you left money on the table. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's a masterstroke. And, and, and getting to what Preston said about fiduciary duty, you know, you had anybody who wanted to sell in at a premium... Yeah. You know, what duty? <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, you know, he gave the option to the shareholders, right? And he gave them the rope to hang themselves. He's not managing other people's money, right? There is, he, he, has, he has the voting rights. So like when you start a company, like amateur hour is, and, and if you don't have money, well, then you have to go out and start doing funding rounds, right? But if you've done this before and you're sitting on enough cash to start your own second business, the whole thing comes down to of keeping your vo- your voting rights. Yeah. If you do need money for whatever reason because you're not cash flow positive, you'll watch people that that have done it before. The first thing they do is, all right, well, let's break out the earnings rights and the voting rights from the from the common stock that we're about to sell you. That way, I never have to listen to a thing you say, and I can tell you to get lost if you ever come in here with a a point of view or a strategic vision that's different than my own. Right. That's where he's at. And that's why he can do this. And and that's why I don't think you're necessarily going to see this from other billion dollar companies because uh, usually when you get that big being able to, I mean, look at Jack Dorsey. It was kind of surprising to me, Michael's question at the end uh, of the, of the podcast with pomp, because I mean, if, if anybody understands why Jack Dorsey's not doing this, it, it's Michael Saylor because of the voting rights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Somebody posted in chat. I think it was Nate Sharp. Shout out, Nate. Uh, 70.8% control of the voting shares. I think he's got about 30% control, uh, 30% of the outstanding or total shares, but uh, 70% of the control and controlling voting shares. So, yeah, yeah I mean, this is very uncommon for a, a big public company, right? Yeah. Well, okay, it is and it isn't, right? Some of the internet giants have exactly the structure, right? Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, Mark does, yeah. <laughs> he controls yeah. Facebook. He's the, I'll never forget the, you know, the movie, The Social Network, right? Where where, uh, where Sean, the char- Sean Parker character has the business cards printed, you know, I'm CEO, bitch, right? <laughs> Which is like, <laughs> it's the message to the board. Like, you can't fire me, I'm in charge. Yeah. That's a, you know, pretty big company. Um, likewise, Google has two share classes. Now, um, Sergey and Larry don't I, don't, I don't think they have technical control, but they have such a large percentage of the voting base that it's practically very hard to unseat them. Um, you know, ditto, I think, um, Warren, uh, Buffett, actually, Warren Buffett has, uh, he's in the 40% range as far yeah. as his voting rights. And yeah, then yeah. when he did his B's, like the B's have like one, one hundredth of the voting rights of a, of an A share. So you know, the, it, it is, I think Andy has a good point that there are, you can find these examples. Now, whether you're going to see 
somebody else go as bold as as Michael Chad Saylor did. I I don't know that you're going to see that. <laughs> Giga Chad. Chad is right. He, he is. I mean, this is an ep- this is truly an epic play. I mean, yeah, Prince is right to be. You know, we're right to be bullish about. Okay, this this does sort of you know this knocks one barrier out of the way, right? For sure, this is a conversation in boardrooms. You know, should we expect you know a massive flood of Bitcoin buying? You know, by every public company out there? No, um, it'll be some seg- some sub segment you know of the market that that ask, acts second, so to speak, is the is the fast follower. But but it's still you know it's still set the clock right. Um, Sailor himself on the on the Bomb podcast said you know he figures I don't know nine nine months for a decent sized company to to sort of run the traps to get where he already is in terms of allocating capital to Bitcoin. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Somebody's going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that really caught my attention uh, on the Pomp podcast was he he really credited first of all the lockdown because he was you know at home and had this time uh, you know and kind of tipped over the edge of the rabbit hole at that point and had a bunch of time to just uh, you know devour Bitcoin content and he really credited the extensive you know library of Bitcoin education that's out there both of you guys included with the investors you know podcast and and your book Andy uh, why buy Bitcoin um, there is so much that's been built out over the last couple of years I think this is super bullish to see uh, you know a corporate CEO who you know has spent a lot of time uh, like you know, running companies for 20, 30 years, he's doing his due, due, due diligence, even if he's running the company himself, right? And he talked about how he sent the bullish case for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin standard and essays by Parker Lewis and podcast episodes out to his, you know, C-suite to study. And then they'd come back and they'd talk about it. They're literally having like Bitcoin jam sessions falling down the rabbit hole together and he gets everybody on board. Uh, they're all Bitcoiners now there. <laughs> um, this, you know, just kind of, array of all different kinds of, of content. There's something for everybody there. Uh, and, and we can bring a corporate CEO up to speed in a couple of months to the point where he's ready to, you know, spend $500 million in Bitcoin is just absolutely bullish to me. What, what I, uh, you see a lot of this on Twitter where people are saying, Oh my God, he's not managing his, his risk and all this other stuff. Yeah. So the company makes $30 million, approximately $30 million a year based on the assets that sit on their balance sheet for the products and services that his country, that his company creates. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's say Bitcoin goes to $5,000 and never goes higher than that for the next two years. How does that, how does that impair anything that he owns? Yeah, it doesn't guess what? He's still making $30 million a year. Right. So the, the argument that this is, posing risk to his company. I would, I would maybe even go as, as far to argue that let's say Bitcoin went to $5,000 tomorrow and stayed there for another two years, right? I think in a year from now or two years from now, his stock is still going to trade as a multiple off of the $30 million that they make every year, mm-hmm. right? It's not going to impact his market cap at all. Yeah. So I'm- everything on wall street works off of the income statement as far as the projection for future earnings. So like people that say things like that and the fiduciary, like they just, they, they don't own a business and they definitely don't do accounting and they definitely don't do valuations on businesses. So I'm going to press the bet here. Okay. What Preston said is hundred percent right. And I'm going to go further, right? There, there are plenty of, you know, activist shareholders who uh, rattle the cages of CEOs because they have too much cash or they have too many, you know, uninvested assets on the balance sheet. Okay. He knows, and he's made the statement that, you know, adding more capital expenditure to existing, to his existing business is not going to grow the business. Um, his situation actually reminds me quite a bit about, or of a bond deal that I did, you know, in a former life, basically back in my days, Goldman for a company called FTI consulting, which like, MicroStrategy is basically a body shop, right? Yes, they have a tech element. Yes, they're involved in software, but they've got like 2,500 employees. And basically they're a consulting business, right? They have smart people that provide, you know, data and analytic solutions to clients. Okay. The company has basically no debt, right? The balance sheet is, is pristine on the liability side. Um, Preston mentioned, you know, they're doing 30 million-ish in, in cash flow. And that's true. Um, 
interestingly, I think it was in the in the Q two, the second quarter results. Uh, in the there's a presentation, and Sailor talked about roughly fifty million of operating cash flow. So I think he's actually guided upwards in, on on the earnings power of the business. When I look at the business, I say, okay, you know, let's call it thirty to fifty million of cash flow. This business could easily support some some debt, right? I don't see any reason why he couldn't go into the high yield bond market, raise a couple hundred million, okay, in bonds, do eight to ten uh, year maturity, right? So you're not, you know, facing basically a, a repayment risk in the next few years. Push it out a number of years. I'd be shocked if you can't raise money. You know, that would be a four times four times leverage, roughly, if you're if you're saying cash flow is EBITDA. That's an approximation. But a four times levered company um, could easily service, you know, 5% coupon debt. You know, that would be what, 10 million or 200 million at 5%. That'd be 10 million bucks on interest expense. He's got 50 million or 30 to 50 million to play around with. He could come over the top, do a $200 million bond deal potentially and buy another 200 million of Bitcoin, right? I mean, this is not impossible. I'm not saying he will do it. What I'm saying is the business could support more debt yeah. if it wanted to. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So another thing that he brought up that I thought we could jam on for a little bit. Uh, he talked about proof of work for a minute on the Palm podcast, which I thought was really interesting um, and made perfect sense once he dropped it. Um, so he's talking about, you know, how do you get over the anxiety of putting so much money into an 11 year old, you know, what some might still consider an experiment. Um, so, you know, he pointed to proof of work. He said, I th- here's a rough quote. He said, uh, this is a proof of work crypto network designed to be a store of value. Uh, and we're going to expend huge amounts of energy to protect that network. So he understands that, you know, there's a need, there's a connection, a real, you know, a connection between the real world and the digital world. And that's through the expenditure of energy. And he understands that that is necessary for the protection of the network, because in turn, you'd have to expend enormous amounts of energy to attack it. So, you know, I've heard the analogy before, I think it may have been Dan Held that it's like a, it's like a giant wall. You know, you can think about that wall in like uh, um, uh, Game of Thrones, right? You know, the ice wall that just keeps going higher and higher, you know, game of, like just hashes on top of hashes on top of hashes, you know, we're doing uh, exa hashes now 150, that's 150 quintillion hashes per second just building that wall of energy to protect the network. And he, he gets that. That's why he's not anxious about putting 500 million bucks into Bitcoin. Love that. I mean, he buys into plan B's stock to flow model and he buys into the idea that, that uh, the price is being driven by production costs, just like Satoshi said it would back in 2010. Yep. Yeah. It's, and it's it's a thing that I think you know most people don't get right, and I want to you know keep talking about this on these shows. Um, the proof of work model is not wasteful. It's, it's got part a, of the incentive a, structure. Exactly. It's also that. I mean, <laughs> so when you when you say you're going to do a proof of stake, uh, I think that it's uh, for me it demonstrates if you're trying to produce some type of crypto coin that is money and you're trying to drive an adoption curve. And if you don't think proof of work is part of that incentive structure, I think you totally miss uh, the whole game theory on this big time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so well, yeah, I'm, I think go ahead. Referring to the, the proof of work concept and you know, Sailor's comments, which you I think articulated really well, you know, both you guys, you know, Sailor's a, a career tech guy, right? I mean, he was, he started MicroStrategy like 30 years ago, was it, I think it was 1989 or something. It's like, 30, yeah. I think he, yeah, 31 years in the, in the founder CEO seat, you know, and he's been public for 20 years or whatever. So he understands networks, he understands tech, but, and this is the thing that all the proof of stakers forget, right? They forget that even whether you're tech CEO or just a non-tech, you know, regular CEO, you're going to trust the thing that's the biggest and is the baddest and has been around the longest time and is the most Lindy. And even if you don't understand proof of work, you do understand that Bitcoin is more than half the quote unquote, you know, crypto market. 
and has had this longevity and it just keeps not dying and coming back and the hash rate increases and it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I mean, it's all the, it's all the stuff that, you know, Max, Max Kaiser actually had a good tirade on the, on the last uh, Swan signal yeah. <laughs> two days ago. You know, it's all this, it's all this stuff that just feeds back. So yeah, the smart, you know, the tech savvy guy understands the proof of work is the thing, but the non tech savvy CEOs are going to understand that, you know, the strongest, longest, you know, enduring network is the thing. And either way, Bitcoin wins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was talking about how, you know, he, he brought up the, you know, the MySpace comparison that always gets thrown at Bitcoin. Uh, you know, there's going to be a new coin and Bitcoin will be the MySpace and, you know, some new technology will come over and eat it up. But he, you know, he was saying, look, once you get to a $100 billion market cap business, uh, you've got network effects that just run away and and destroy everything else and we've seen that with all the you know networks social networks etc on built on top of the internet and it's basically he's saying it's game over right you know bitcoin is won at this point uh and it's clear that we're all arriving you know at that same conclusion for the most part um so it's yeah the network effects upon network effects and uh it's it's a runaway freight train at this point inevitable can I go back to the comment? I think Preston, you said, you know, someone was claiming, oh, this is reckless from a fiduciary, you know, standpoint, putting money in Bitcoin. I just want to return to that. So, um, you know, my one of my jobs as a wealth manager is, is an asset allocator and I, I give money to, you know, hedge funds and other active managers, you know, to, to go pick stocks to, to go manage. Um, so my question, I have a new question for any existing managers and candidate managers. And my question is, tell me your best investment ideas and please benchmark them against the following. <laughs> MicroStrategy <laughs> stock, right, is up 35% in five weeks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, forget about like just going along Bitcoin. Let's say you're just a stock manager or let's say you're an activist fund manager or even you're, you know, a crypto fund manager hey crypto fund manager you know is your is your best idea altcoin you know going up 35 percent in five weeks i mean maybe one or two of them right but but can you get the kind the same kind of risk adjusted you know return in some you know non-equity non-sec you know or regulation you know protected quote-unquote asset as you can in a nasdaq listed stock um you know Show me a better idea. I'm I'm waiting. I'll, I'm here all night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what? Uh, how much is the MicroStrategy stock up now uh, since the news in August? It's like, did you say thirty five percent? Is that what you said? Yeah, that I mean, much. I think it was 20? at one twenty one or something. And He's what, up a hundred percent since March. Well, that's true too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, approximately. I mean, it, it might be eighty or ninety, but it, it's it's up almost a hundred percent since the bottom in March. It's like a Bitcoin yeah. ETF now. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And by the way, that comment, I think, is one of the reasons that, he, that Sailor and the board, you know, took pains to issue a separate press release that says, you know, not just we bought Bitcoin, but, you know, this is our holistic new treasury strategy. Right. And by the way, if you don't like it, you know, tender your shares, you know, we'll, t we'll take you out. So, you know, from a from a sort of an SEC perspective, this is not the same dynamic as um, what Long Island blockchain, right? Or like, you know, company that renames itself, you know, to, to take advantage of the, you know, the, the buzz or the upward swing in, in Bitcoin or crypto. Now, this is a well-measured, well-articulated, uh, you know, corporate finance decision that gave an out for shareholders that didn't want to participate. We got a couple of questions coming in from the chat and YouTube. Let's roll with uh, this one from Dennis. It's for Preston. Preston has said on other pods that he believes there will be another liquidity event similar to March at some point. Does he expect Bitcoin to be affected in the same way? He's trying trying to reconcile with this. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if it did. Uh I don't know that it's going to be as pronounced as as the event in March, just because of the just lack of coins that you now have on the market to be purchased based on the change in the reward. Um, 
I'm a firm believer that that the further away from the 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 last having event that you get, the the just you're you're sucking all that liquidity of the of the previous reward uh, flow out of the market. You got Michael Saylor's, you know, buying just. 38,250 Bitcoin off the market. So those aren't there to be, uh, to allow that, that drastic drop kind of like what we saw in March. So I think that the macro, I think the the impairment that you see on the macro landscape is going to be extremely real in how much, how many fiat units are removed from the system all at once and in a very cascading uh, way like very quickly two three week period of time right it's going to happen fast and most people do not have a hundred percent of their savings in bitcoin so um they have other positions they have other positions that have counterparty risk call it debt or it's some type of derivative vehicle that isn't a hundred percent escrow in there right um those kind of things are what just remove the number of units from the system very quickly and so i think if you see the entire stock market, global stock market going down, similar to like what we saw in March, do not be surprised if you see Bitcoin initially go with it. Um, but the rebound is going to be uh, much more dramatic than the rebound that we saw in March because it's going to be still trying to achieve that 100,000 uh, stock to flow uh, valuation mark. And, and rest assured, the central banks are going to step in and print. They're going to quadruple down. <laughs> I don't know if they'll quadruple down, but they're going to they're gonna come with even more firepower than they came with in March uh, if there's this fiscal uh, air that I kind of suspect will eventually play out. Yep. Sounds good, man. Uh, we have one for Andy from the chat. I believe this one from, was from Max in YouTube. Ricky, you want to throw that one up on the screen for us? If you can still get to it. Um, if not... Just send me in chat what it is and I'll, I'll ask it out. And I, I see George's comment, 288 K. Yeah. Uh, that could be, that could be the, uh, orbit, not a hundred K. I don't know which one it is. I'm just using the more conservative number. Yeah. Yeah. Six figures, six figures feels right. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel once you get to six figures, cause then you're, you know, I stop there. Well, it's just that big round number, right? There'll be definitely be some resistance there, but we'll plow through it like 10K, I think. Um, and plus, I think, you know, you get to, I think you get to gold's market. What What is the number to get to gold's market cap? Is it like 50 something? Or is that? Yeah, uh, I think it's, 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 it's 20, it's 20 ish million times 500 grand is, is 10 trillion, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, okay. Here's the question. Uh, and this is a good one. And he actually talked about this on Twitter today. Uh, and we all, I'll just kind of read these tweets out because, and then we can let Preston um, go go from there. Um, so Michael Saylor tweeted that we acquired 21,000, this is from the initial buy of 21,000 in August. We acquired 21,454 BTC via 78,388 off-chain transactions then secured it in cold storage with 18 on-chain transactions. Uh, he says, Bitcoin scales just fine as a store of value. He says, if then he followed up, uh, if Bitcoin is treated as a treasury reserve asset based on our model, 99.98% of all transactions will be off-chain and assets at risk will be in cold storage 99.92% of the time. Sounds like a great model to me. Very efficient. Uh, so, so Preston, can you take those numbers and kind of explain how, uh, you know, this much Bitcoin was bought without moving price too much? So, <laughs> uh, I talked to Michael on the phone today and, um, we talked about this specific topic and, um, uh, I just don't know at what discretion I have to really kind of, uh, answer it. So I'm, okay. I'm going to kind of pass the buck, but I, I will say, I guess I'll say this in a, in a general way. Mm -hmm. Um, he, if, if you were trying to put as much of a position on as he put within a quarter because of the, the quarterly reporting that they've got to do with their, with their 10 Q, um, he could have easily 
put that much of a position on throughout a quarter easily over a, a three month period of time and not even no one would have known at all. Yeah. Very easily. So, and, and his point to me was, I, I just can't imagine if, if you're a, uh, uh, Paul Tudor Jones and you're coming at this thing with billions, like you could, you could do it very silently was yeah. his point to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it goes to, it speaks to Bitcoin's liquidity, right? I yeah. mean, you can acquire a, a bunch of Bitcoin, you know, like you said, off-chain transactions, 78,000 off-chain, uh, off-chain transactions. Yeah. Um, and it, he, he talks about this also in terms of volatility, um, because, you know, this is really comes down to being a question of volatility. You know, why didn't the price move so much? And he, t- he says the volatility is not a problem, especially long term. But even now, like he says that, you know, one guy like him can damp the volatility to either side because he's buying, you know, off, you know, OTC and stuff with making you know private deals. And, you know, institutions will come in after this and they'll dampen both sides. In fact, he said that and this was great. He said that institutions have an incentive to dampen the downside but not necessarily the upside. So he's like, if there's going to be volatility in the future, it's going to be to the upside because that's good for everyone, you know? Yeah. And think about it with, with a person like him taking that many Bitcoin off the market, uh, that just aren't going to be traded. Like, you know, just can't, you can't produce more of these things. And so when they're taken off the market and they're stuffed into the hands of somebody who says they're going to hold on to them for a hundred years, uh, I mean, I treat mine the exact same way. Like I, Dude, I'm not putting these things on the market and trading these dips. I mean, give me a break. I don't want I don't want to deal with the tax burden. Right? Like what? Give me a break. So can I, can I, no, I, think sorry, most, I think most people with significant sums of money that are that are doing this are clawing them off the market and they're they're stacking them away and not even thinking about putting them back on the market anytime soon, regardless, irregardless of the volatility. Sorry, Andy. Yeah, no, I just want to augment the the concept of sort of putting, you know, buy pressure on or sort of putting a floor on price, right? Which is exactly what, you know, Preston was talking about. So if you if you're a fund manager, you know, I go back to my days working at a hedge fund. I do all this due diligence work. I do my research. I go pitch the investment committee. Okay, I finally get approval to buy a stock or a bond or in this case, Bitcoin. Okay, I've got an approval. And I've got like a limit price, you know, a makeup numbers right now. Okay. Bitcoin's, a, I haven't looked lately, but it's, you know, near 11 K. So maybe I'm approved to buy at, you know, 12 K or lower. Okay. To a certain amount. Now I can't, I don't want to go, you know, put in a, an order for however many, you know, tens of thousands of Bitcoins at once because that'll spook the market. But as long as I'm buying sort of below my limit then it's sort of at my discretion. So I don't want to spook the market, but I also, you know, every time the market goes down, I'm going to be that steady bid, right? Because the worst thing that happens to me as a, let's say an analyst or a, you know, junior portfolio manager at a fund is I got my approval to buy the thing and then the price ran away from me, right? It got, it got too high. It went over 12K. Now I got to go back to my investment committee. You could have a similar dynamic, you know, with the corporate balance sheet where, you know, the CFO or the CEO says, okay, my board approved this to buy, you know, X, you know, tens of millions of dollars of Bitcoin, um, but it's got to be at a certain price or better. So don't spook the market. But, you know, if you can move volume slowly through the system and accumulate, you know, in the range that you are now or a little bit lower, you know, you're going to you're going to push the, the price up. The second thing I'll say, and this is not with the benefit of, you know, being an OTC trader or anyone active in the Bitcoin market, because I'm certainly not that. But when you look at accumulating stock as an investor, pretty safe to buy, you know, 10% of the volume in a day. In other words, if a stock trades, you know, a thousand or let's say 10,000 shares a day, you can probably buy a thousand shares a day, roughly speaking, without sort of moving the price, moving the market. So if Bitcoin, you know, trades a billion plus a day, you know, more than a billion in sort of BTC to USD, then you can be buying a hundred million a day by that logic, you know, with, with little, little difficulty. So yeah, it's, it's Bitcoin is the only crypto asset quote unquote that one can buy in size, I think without significantly moving the market. Yeah. I think Michael would agree with you. 
Yeah, well, he, he does. And here's the way he put it. I, I think it's great. He said, uh, Bitcoin is magical. It's the hardest working asset in the history of the world. You can liquidate enormous sums of this stuff on a Saturday night. What other asset can you do that with? <laughs> Preston is protecting his source because uh, he said that he talked talked with him directly, and uh, so discretion here. I can see Preston. I, I can tell you right now that like that was one of the big things that he that he was disclosing to me, and that he was surprised is just how uh, like I think for him he came at it with so much money, and I think he was just amazed that he wasn't able to to uh, move it like you would in, in an equity or anything else. Yeah. It's it's a massive, massive global market that's just chewing through fiat like nothing else. Oh. <laughs> it's oh. amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Uh, Michael has a, a good comment here in YouTube. He says, going back to fiduciary duty, uh, I believe Saylor in the interview with Pomp briefly mentioned that CEOs need to consider the negative effects of holding cash and need to protect their treasury. So talking about fiduciary duty, right? Like he, Saylor made the metaphor of, of uh, you know, holding cash in your treasury as an ice cube melting, you know? And I, uh, I can't yeah. stand that term uh, just because this is not a hedge fund that we're talking about. This is not a money manager. This is not a financial yeah. advisor. I just like when I hear fiduciary duty, those are the things I think about. This right, is a right. business this guy owns this business. He has, he has the voting rights of this business. And so he can do anything he wants for the most part. Um, I mean, he, he can do a whole lot more than somebody who's managing a hundred million dollars that was given to them from other people. So, um, yeah. I, I push back on that terminology, but, um, I think his, the, the comment that, that the person's asking there about protecting that, uh, they had, that erosion of cash on their balance sheet. You know, a lot of these companies, they're sitting on marketable securities is what they're doing. They're yeah. buying equity. I think a lot of them have wised up to the, to the fact that you don't want to have something with counterparty risk on your balance sheet. Um, I mean, just look at, look at Berkshire Hathaway. It's a perfect example. If you went back uh, before the 2008 crisis, they had a ton of fixed income uh securities sitting on their on their balance sheet and the reason why is because they knew if we go into another recession the central banks are going to come in they're going to drop interest rates and then those those 10-year 30-year bonds or whatever they are the longer duration the better uh get bid like crazy and they make tons of money and and what you haven't seen since 2008 is warren buffett putting a bunch of long duration uh bonds back on their balance sheet They've kept it in short-term, uh, low, very low-duration, uh, cash-like um, bonds, but they're they're very short in duration. So the risk, the the interest rate risk, the inflation risk is not there on them. Uh, they they spend just like cash. Um, but you look at how many marketable securities are on a balance sheet like Berkshire Hathaway, they're buying businesses. Now, what are they buying the right ones? Well, their Apple play was sure a good one. I mean, look at how Apple's performed this, this year. I mean, it's just been, it's, it's going hyperbolic, man. It's crazy. Anything, any type of business, any type of equity, which I don't see that as counterparty risk for the most part. Um, I mean, you could get into a nuanced definition of it probably being that in some regard, but like for the most part, you don't have counterparty risk there. And uh, what you want to own is something that has this impenetrable moat of uh, enduring competitive advantage that doesn't have a lot of tangible assets on the balance sheet that uh, can weather a depression-like scenario. If you're owning that type of equity, it's going to do fine. It's going to it's going to protect your buying power. Is probably the best way I can describe it. Is it going to outpace a currency that has been created for the very first time on a global scale that has a minuscule pathetic market cap in reference to where it's intending to go? Of course you're not going to compete with that kind of buying power. Right? <laughs> But if, if you're conservative and you don't understand this and you don't understand proof of work and you don't understand network effects, and you don't understand all that, that stuff we talk about so commonly and you're an investor that just wants to stick to something, you know, I would, I would tell them that's probably the place they need to go when they're looking at equities is things that, that fit that description that I just provided. Yeah. This feeds back into what came out of Michael Saylor's mouth, you know, again, too, which was 
one of the things he said was, you know, 10 years ago or eight years ago, you know, buying network effect enabled businesses was a great idea, right? You could buy Apple at, I don't know what the valuation was then, you know, a few hundred billion dollars. Well, at $2 trillion, right? It, it wasn't so long ago that Apple traded at eight times earnings, right? It traded like hardware company. Now it trades at 35 times earnings. So it trades like a pure software company, um, which is right. Well, neither is quite right, right? The answer is somewhere in the middle. It is, you know, software and hardware. Um, but when Sailor says, oh, this is a an already dominant network, it's, you know, it's it's fairly clear that it that it is the dominant network, you know, in the space in the arena in which it's competing. And you can pick it up for a couple hundred billion bucks rather than a couple trillion bucks. Um, yeah, that's that seems uh, that seems more compelling. Um, I'm not bearish on software companies, you know, or giant companies, but Sailor is right when he's when he suggests that the upside embedded in a you know couple trillion dollar company like or stock like Apple is just much more limited than for a, an asset that is one tenth the size but has you know ten or a hundred times the potential market. Um, I mean, what happens when you have you know? comparably comparatively infinite free debt from central banks fighting against an immutable fixed supply, right? Like, you know, uh, sailor saying, you know, like Preston was alluding to this sailor said, you know, he's, he's holding this stuff for a hundred freaking years, right? Like he doesn't care about the volatility, you know, um, if there is any, right. And he's still making 30 million next year. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And like, he's, you know, this this is a, a perfect example, right? So if you have this infinite free debt and you have this immutable fixed supply asset, you have people taking it, like like Sailor taking it off the market. He's not trading. He's holding that. That's gone. You know, like you said, for a, for a century, you know, like he maybe he's being a little uh, hyperbolic there, but maybe not. And then, you know, you just start squeezing everybody because, you know, they're just holding, they're holding the bad money. This is, uh, this is how it works, right? The the good money pushes out the bad, and I, this is this is how it starts. It starts with a CEO who has you know controlling, you know, interest of his company and can make this happen with you know relatively little friction. Um, but you know, a year, two years, uh, you know, you'll see more conservative you know boards and companies starting to allocate. Yeah, I love how it blows blows up on the you know the idea of the you know the the risk free or you know, low risk, you know, just keep your purchasing power, you know, power asset at, at the corporate treasury level, right? Wind back the clock 10 years and the CFO, it, well, the CEO says to the CFO, hey, CFO, you know, cash, the quote unquote cash, don't lose it, you know, don't lose the money. And then the CFO goes to the treasurer and says, you know, don't lose the money and earn me, you know, a positive rate of return. And the treasurer says, okay, I can do that, you know, because I own a little bit of long-term treasury debt, I own some medium to short-term treasury debt, and then I have some, you know, short-term and cash equivalents, and that's yielding me a few percentage points. And uh, you know, and, and inflation, quote unquote, you know, CPI inflation is two percent, so I'm beating inflation. Now, fast forward to 2020, present day, um, you know, the 10-year Treasury bond is below one percent, and basically the whole yield curve is near zero. So the CFO says to the treasurer, um, you know, just don't lose the money, and the treasurer says okay, if I buy safe securities, I'm guaranteed to lose you money, right? I'm guaranteed to lose you purchasing power. So if you need me to not lose you purchasing power, then we need to think different <laughs> as uh, as a uh, former Apple uh, founder CEO would say, we need to think different about how we allocate our treasury. And um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of finance committees and boards who are, quote unquote, thinking different about what it means to not lose purchasing power, um, you know, with your corporate treasury. Yeah. Uh, okay. One other topic I wanted to bring up uh, that Sailor mentioned on Pomp, and I think it's a good one to talk about um, that. <laughs> he didn't call it this, but it, it is the topic of toxicity in Bitcoin. He said, I want to hear that, like he's talking about, you know, if you're going to put a bunch of money in into Bitcoin, um, 
you know, he, he led into it by saying, you can take $500 million and put it on our network and everybody in the community is going to spend every iota of their energy to make sure no one Fs with the network. He's like, when I am looking at the Bitcoin community, I don't want to, you know, hear about any of the alternatives, right? He's like, I want to hear that you're going to defend the network to the death against someone who would compromise it. And, you know, we, we, we have this conversation and I think it's important to talk about on shows like this because we do have people who are new to Bitcoin watching and, you know, you'll see uh, these very heated debates. Uh, and actually, they won't even be debates. They'll just get very heated, like just shut down. Like, we're not going to talk to you about this altcoin or this other, you know, idea. And it may, it will sound, it did to me at first too, um, off-putting, you know, uh, why won't these, why won't they, why are they closed-minded? You know, why are they not willing to have this conversation? Well, the, you know, what I learned was is that conversation has been had a thousand times and, you know, we've realized how important, uh, you know, this, this thing is, how, how much, it's, you know, is at stake here uh, and how important it is to have Bitcoin in the world and have Bitcoin be successful uh, because fiat is so damaging uh, and scams are damaging. So um, he, he gets it. I mean, he gets it. He's come along on all fronts and he even gets, you know, this kind of aspect of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think, you know, for the corporate treasurer, I'm just I'm spitballing here and I'm thinking out loud, you know, to, to the concept of the, you know, the toxicity of, of Bitcoin and the liquidity and the market depth and just the Lindy. Um, and I don't mean to deflect the question, but I'm thinking about, you know, the next CEO or treasurer who's like, okay, I want to allocate to something to quote unquote, you know, crypto assets. Let's say they want to go that wide, you know. It's like saying, okay, it's like the treasurer saying, well, usually we buy treasuries, but, you know, how about we buy Nigerian government bonds? Not to pick, on, not to pick on Nigeria, you know, but, you know, how about we buy some, you know, developing market, uh, you know, bonds and that's our treasury asset. And it's like, wait, what? No, you're going to pick the biggest, baddest asset out there. And the toxicity of the community, for sure, you know, defends defends this thing. And uh, you know, I try to be uh, as toxic uh, as possible within reason. Uh, although I'm still a legacy finance guy, so you know, viewers can judge for themselves. But but yeah, I mean, it's just when people come into this thing and they're doing their learning, um, they're going to see it as the biggest, baddest, most defensible network out there. And Sailor is smarter than most. Um, but it's just hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore the facts on the ground. Yeah. 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 Um, are you getting I, a question, uh, feed by the way on the, on the right Brady? Yeah. Okay. Right on. You want to bring some more in? Call one out if you, if you like it, Andy. No, I don't know. There's so many that it's, I don't. Let's, that let's do this one. Let's do the crap and getting a bank license. Um, you guys have any comments about, Kraken being the first uh, crypto exchange uh, company, I guess, to get a bank license uh, out of Wyoming, I think. I mean, I think this is just massive, right? I mean, all all I've heard since I've owned Bitcoin for the last five years is how governments are going to shut it down and how as soon as it starts to take off, uh, the government's going to confiscate it and like all these things, right? That's all we've heard for five years. And now you're seeing the exact opposite. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you just have taken a sledgehammer to that argument. I, I guess that's my only comment. Yeah, Absolutely. Preston, you, Preston, you've you managed to condense it to the nub. I mean, it's so incisive. It's like, look, it's happening. You know, once once you got a bank, you know, once you got licensed banks and you got you know corporate treasuries or you know Nasdaq listed companies buying the thing, like, how are you going to outlaw it? Yeah, the um, entrenchment's crazy. Yeah, I, I guess my only thing that I would add is the the setup. This I think brought to light or highlighted sort of the genius of the Wyoming uh, SPDI setup which is the thing about banks okay is the main reason they're so heavily regulated is because of the leverage right is because they do fractional reserve <laughs> and they can blow up and that's a problem we've seen it happen before in this country we've seen it happen in, in other countries and it's ugly so you know by the way i happen to believe as i'm sure do both you guys and most of our viewers that 
fractional reserve banking, at least, you know, 10 to one leverage, you know, 50 years from now, we'll, we'll go down in the history books as, you know, one of those things, one of those barbarous relics that we've graduated past as a species, right? Like this was a bad idea. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree, Andy. Exactly. So, you know, hopefully we move, hopefully Bitcoin brings us past this civilizationally. But the brilliance of the of the SPDI, you know, license structure is it's one-to-one, right? It's got to be fully backed. So usually I think the regulator or the congressperson, you know, or the government person's objection, you know, potential objection to something, you know, new and exciting or potentially quote-unquote dangerous in finance in general is there's embedded leverage. This just does away with that. This says, don't worry about the leverage. It's one-to-one backed. You know, it's just not even a concern. So this is a, the way it was structured is a smart step to, to remove that um, sort of headline risk um, from the whole concept. And that way you get the licensed, you know, Bitcoin or crypto associated institution gets the foot in the door you know, and, and the, and the beat goes on. Right. And it's, and it's not just fractional reserve banking. It's an accelerative fractional reserve ratio, right. That we've seen for 80 years. And so what does that create from an incentive structure when that's your policy for decades? What it does is it creates an incentive where as soon as you get anything in your pocket, you're incentivized to go and spend it as soon as possible and live outside of your means and to do all these things that we see in society. And we say, why are, why does everybody do that? Clearly you're living outside your means and you're just going in debt up to your eyeballs. And it's an incentive structure that has been created through fractional reserve banking that has aggressively expanded its ratio for an even larger fractional reserve. And you're at the end game and this is going to, be the solution. I, I, I saw um, on the announcement for the Kraken bank, I saw somebody asked uh, in Jesse Powell's announcement, I saw somebody had said something about fractional reserve banking and Jesse Powell responded to the person said, well, according to our license, we can't do any fractional reserve banking. And I was just like, Oh God, I love this. <laughs> like this is going to be amazing. And it's going to be, you know what, the transition for society is going to be extremely painful. But the end state of where this is going is it's going to it's going to help a lot of people. And it's going to provide a remedy to so many issues that we see in society right now. And it's going to happen in a way that I think for for most actors that aren't like heavily into this kind of stuff as, as we are. I think it's just going to be like, wow, just remember back in 2020 when it just felt like the whole world was going to blow up and 20, 30 years from now, it's going to, it's going to feel like everything is trending in a, in a way different direction. That's beneficial for all parties involved across the entire globe. It's the dawn of the Bitcoin Renaissance, everyone. Yeah. And this is why we call it the rabbit hole, right? Because it just keeps going. The effects, the follow on effects of the very simple change from a short time preference money to a long time preference money is ma- massive down the, down the stream. And then you make those individual changes, you know, incentivizing, realigning those incentives with, you know, personal uh, betterment uh, for yourself or your family, then that all just accumulates snowballs uh, into a society that does the same thing. And then you get, that's why we call it, you know, I like to call it the Renaissance because you get projects that are long-term, you know, just like, 50, 60 year projects of uh, just grand ambition, right? That you only really get when you have uh, the like solid foundation of a lot, you know, a money like Bitcoin, a uh, fixed asset uh, money. And you don't have fiat that's like stealing from your time all the time. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, there's like Jeff Booth likes to talk about, you combine this deflationary money with deflationary technology and you provide the base, you know, you satisfy basic needs for most people on everyone eventually on the planet for extremely low cost, uh, you know, trending toward free. And uh, once you have those basic needs taken, taken uh, care of, then of course, like you're able to pursue your dreams, your ideas, your, you know, hopes, passions, all that stuff. Uh, so that that's, that's where this thing leads. Um, and that's why Preston's so excited about the end state. Uh, it's, it's amazing. So it's, I think inevitable and, 
also like a moral imperative, <laughs> you know, you're, you're definitely going to take a step back to take two forward though. Um, yeah, I think no here in the, here in the short term, it's, it's going to be pretty brutal for some folks, I think. Yeah. This is the hardest thing that I struggle with explaining to people, you know, the ethics of Bitcoin basically, which is when you go down the rabbit hole as ever, you know, probably most people listening to this pod have, and obviously Preston, you know, Brady, you guys both have is you come to the realization that the edifice, you know, is cracked and broken. And so we can do this the hard way or the really hard way. <laughs> and the longer the charade and the leveraging up goes again, back to, uh, you know, Jeff Booth's thesis, the harder the unwind and the more painful. And so, it's really the this it's the decision of do we take more sorry do we take less pain by getting over the hump sooner you know or do we just keep deferring and building up and accumulating more pain and damage and one of the things I struggled to you know I, I talked with my wife about this right uh, and and I'm like look like this is we're talking you know we're talking war we're talking there could be many lives lost could be real strife and struggle. And so it won't be, the damage won't be, if it's, if it's allowed to continue, right. The, the damage won't be counted in dollars. It will be counted in, in true human suffering. So I believe that bringing forward the day of reckoning at a lower threshold of pain and damage is, is just about, you know, it's gotta be one of the most ethical things that one can spend one's time on. Hundred percent agree. That's why we're here, right? What on else a, can you say on a on a Thursday night at ten o'clock Eastern? Yeah, I mean, if we're on a <laughs> NGU, uh, NGU makes it a little less painful. Oh yeah, no doubt about that, right? <laughs> I mean, look, we can sit here and talk about how we are here for the moral imperative and the you know ethical, more ethical future, which we are. But you know, I think most of us, if not all of us, got into this thing because of number go up, <laughs> NGU technology. So that's that's one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin, right? It aligns those incentives and then uh, gives you gives you something even even bigger and greater to go after. Um, all right, well let's wrap this up. We do have a couple of fun questions uh, for Preston. Um, one of them was uh, I think it's from someone from Bitcoin Mom in uh, YouTube. This was from a while back, so I don't know if we can dig it up or not. But the question was. Uh, Preston, what kind of plane are you going to buy when all of this, uh, grand vision comes to fruition? <laughs> oh man. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. Related question. <laughs> uh, which is more exciting piloting or Bitcoin? I mean, here's the, so here's the thing with getting your own plane is like, do you get something that, that is for fun and for, you know, going out there and flying around and scaring yourself a little bit or do you get something that's that has utility uh for getting the family from place to place so that's that'll be the challenge um what was the what was the other one which is more exciting piloting or bitcoin to you well <laughs> uh yeah piloting was <laughs> the type of piloting that i had the experience to, to do was was yeah it was it's pretty hard to match that experience but um this is pretty exciting. This, this is very, uh, for me, this is a lot of hard work in, in the critical thinking that's required to make sure that you're, that you're not doing anything stupid. Um, yeah. so, and, and there's, there's some parallels there to, to flying at least a, a combat aircraft there is. Um, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take the uh, Apache on that question. <laughs> that was one of the guesses I saw uh, in the chat. So there you go. You already good. Apache. Good. good guess. Yeah. That'll cost you a few, uh, a few, few bitcoins. What's a, that's got to be a few million bucks uh, unit unit cost for one of those, right? Yeah, if you can even get your hands on one. I mean, it's military <laughs> export. So, but yeah, 26, 26 million, I think, is the the going price for one of those. Ooh, that's a lot of bitcoin. Pretty rich. It's gonna be less. It's gonna be le a lot less in ten years. Yeah. Uh, cool. Um, if I was gonna, if I was gonna buy a jet, probably something affordable, uh, like a like a toy jet, like an L thirty nine, something like that. Nice. That's good. My best friend is a is a pilot, also, and um, 
Well, you're going to fly your own aircraft, right? I was going to say, uh, you know, he'd be happy to, he'd be happy to fly you. I don't but, know if uh, I trust myself anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Out of That's a question, right? If, if you're, if there's stakes, you know, it's one thing if it's, uh, if it's your own life and you're flying solo, but you know, if you got passengers, uh, do you want, do you want to be taking, uh, do you want to have the responsibility? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, hopefully the AI is is further along here in the future. And then and it doesn't matter if you're a pilot or not. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> I think that's an easier. I think that's an easier software solution than the than on the ground. To be honest with you, I'm sure it is. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot uh, a lot less to take into account. I mean, you just you're not trying to miss. On. Yeah, the all the various obstacles and interpretations and and whatnot. I think that you know, up in the air and, and just the, the traffic patterns and all that kind of stuff is highly uh, regulated in the way that everything's published and updated. So I, I would think that that would be a much easier solution to, to kind of come up with is autonomous flying. Which will be more dangerous in five years, uh, piloting a jet or managing your private keys? The keys. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, gentlemen. Gentlemen, this was fun as always. We'll do this again. Uh, We will, uh, well, we'll have to do it again. Maybe we should just make this a regular deal. This is too much fun. You guys, uh, a lot of fun uh, hanging out with you. So don't forget swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys. All right, that's coming soon. And I'm super excited about it. And we've had massive demand about it. Uh, so that will be launching by the end of the month. Hopefully you can go to swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys uh, to get signed up for that. And both of these guys uh, have SwanForce links, our referral program. So if you want to support Andy or Preston, you can go to swanbitcoin.com slash Preston or slash Andy. You'll get 10 bucks of Bitcoin. And, you know, you can support these guys, uh, you know, hard work for Bitcoin. It's a lot of hard work, like, Andy, uh, like Preston was saying. So, all right, gentlemen, take care. Thanks, Brady. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, guys. Great time, as always. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to Andy and Preston for joining us. You can find Andy on Twitter at EdstromAndrew, E-D-S-T-R-O-M-A-N-D-R-E-W. And you can find Preston at Preston Pish. That's P-R-E-S-T-O-N-P-Y-S-H. I am at Citizen Bitcoin, and you'll find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast. It's really fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcasts at youtube.com slash swansignal. You can head over there, subscribe, and turn on the notifications. We have a lot of fun in the live chat, and we often work in questions from listeners. Also, one final note, daily buys are coming. You can get in the beta group at swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys, and uh, we'll be launching those hopefully in the next few weeks. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. Follow us on Twitter at swanbitcoin and subscribe to the podcast at swansignalpodcast.com.